I want to say this, man. Thank you for joining us this holiday weekend, uh, this Labor Day weekend. Unless you're working tomorrow, then just happy Sunday, and thanks for being with us. I want to begin with a story of a man, his wife, and his this man's mother-in-law. Now, they're living in America, but they go to take a trip to the Holy Land in Jerusalem. And while they were there, uh, the mother-in-law unexpectedly passed away, and she dies. And so in the midst of everything going on, they go to the funeral director and the funeral director told them, um, we can ship her body home to back to America for $5,000, or we can bury her here in the Holy Land for just 150. What would you rather do? What would you like to do? So the man says, well, I need some time to consider it, consider it and think through my options and some of you figure it out. Uh, so he goes and he thinks about it and he comes back later in the day. He meets with the funeral director and he says, um, I would like to pay uh, the $5,000 to have her body shipped back home. The funeral director was really deeply moved at this and said, wow, uh, you must have really loved your mother-in-law. I mean, that's a lot of money. The man responded by saying, actually, no, but a few years ago, I came across a story where a man was buried here and three days later came back from the dead, and I just can't take that chance. <laughs> now, now that story, here, Uzi, we have a man who clearly did not love or want his mother-in-law. Like, he was like, ah, this is actually a net positive for me. Let's leave her here. And, and I share that story because today, as we continue our time in Genesis, here's the question that we're going to look at. Uh, what does God do with unwanted people? What does God do with people who are not liked, who are not loved, who want to be discarded, who are not cared for? What does he do with people like this? Does he want to leave them where they are? Does he want to ship them away? What does God do with unwanted people? Uh, So that's the question that we're going to be looking at today. Um, If you have a Bible, would you go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 29? We'll be in Genesis 29 and halfway through 30. And I guess it's just me and the strobe light today. I guess that's what's going to happen here. And so uh, we'll do it. Uh, uh, Genesis 29, 30. Now, if you've been with us, Really quickly, just want to recap you where we are. Uh, we're now currently in the story of Jacob. So we've seen God create everything. He calls Abraham out of grace and mercy and love. Says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And then somehow, someway, one day, I'm going to bless the, bless the entire world through your offspring. So we saw Abraham, then Isaac, and now we saw Jacob the last couple of weeks. And what we saw is Jacob is a deceiver, right? His, his stories are not great. He deceives his brother. He deceives his father. And so he's pretty much on the run for his, his life. And at the same time, he leaves where he's at, takes a 550-mile journey uh, back to his, his ancestors to try to find a wife. So his parents send him away, his, his mom sends him away, his dad sends him away to find a wife to marry, to have kids, to continue the covenant. Uh, uh, while there, last week we saw that he has this dream where God meets him out of grace and mercy, says, I'm going to do for you what I promised Abraham, what I promised Isaac. And yet Jacob's response to that is kind of interesting. Instead of saying, like, being thankful and being excited, he says, okay, that sounds good, God. If you do everything you promised, then and only then will I worship you. And so we have this guy named Jacob who is not off to a great start. God has been kind and gracious to him. He doesn't fully understand who he is. And we're going to continue his story today. Now, today we're going to read a pretty much a pretty well-known story if you're familiar with some of the stories in Genesis where Jacob meets Leah and Rachel. Now, Rachel is beautiful. Uh, she has everything going for her. And Leah, her sister, is overlooked. We're going to see in this story that she's taken advantage of. We're going to see that Leah is unloved. And so I just want to set this up today. What do you do if that is you, right? Or if you have experienced that, right? Being overlooked or taken advantage of or wanted, unwanted in your life. Uh, The details in your life are going to be different than what we're going to read today, but the feelings are the same. 
I think many of us can articulate or can relate to being there where you feel like abandoned, abused, and unloved. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to read today most of this, this, all the story up front, and then we're going to apply it quickly at the end. So here's where we go. Genesis 29, starting in verse 1. We'll be in page 24 if you're using the Black Bibles in front of you. It says this. Jacob, again, this is after his dream where God appears to him, promises him all these things. It says, Jacob returned, resumed his journey, and went to the eastern country. Resumed his journey, went to the eastern country. Now, uh, eastern country is significant for two reasons why the narrator is calling it this. Uh, he's referring to the area of eastern Palestine, specifically the area of Padan Aram, which we know where that's where he's going because we were told that in Genesis chapter 28. And so the, why would the narrator then call it the eastern country? Well, there's two things probably going on. No, number one, um, likely he is trying to show us that Jacob is unsure of exactly where he is. So he's almost pretty much completed his journey. He's He's made it back to his ancestral homeland, but you know, he doesn't have a map necessarily. So he might not exactly know where he is, but he might know he's close. Uh, the second reason that's in there uh, is, is more, probably more significant. And if you've been with us through this story, uh, you might know that there is a word in this sentence that is supposed to jump off the page. And that's the word East. Okay, so if you picked up on that, I just want to say, go little go, you little Bible nerd, you. I mean, you're learning, okay? You know, if you've been with us through Genesis, that east equals negative, okay? When things are east, that things are not going to be good. That's people moving away from God's presence where sin and judgment often take place. And so if you thought eastern, if he's moving east, probably something good is not going to happen and he's going to be taken advantage of, manipulated. That's what's going to happen in this story. Verse two, it says this. He looked and saw a well in a field. Three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it because the sheep were watered from this well. But a large stone covered the opening of the well. The shepherds would roll the stone from the opening of the well and water the sheep when all the flocks were gathered there. Then they would return the stone to its place over the well's opening. So, so Jacob, and we're not sure if he has any traveling party with him or if he's kind of by himself, but, but he arrives at the well. It's covered by a large stone, which was pretty typical in that time period. Um, they would put stones over wells to protect the people, but more, even more so animals from falling in. Uh, they would help guard it against contamination, and it would also help regulate when it could be used, because typically it would take a couple of men to move these heavy stones. And so uh, we know from the story that Jacob is looking for a wife, and just like Abraham uh, sent his servant Elizer to find a wife uh, for Isaac, Jacob's father in this same area, and which also happened at a well, something similar is going to happen to Jacob here. Jacob now finds himself at a well. Uh, some scholars argue this is the same well where Rebecca, his mother, was found by Abraham's servant, Eliezer. Uh, we don't know that for sure, but he's at this well. He sees these people. It says this in verse 4. Jacob asked the men at the well, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they answered. Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Jacob asked them. Remember, he's trying to find Laban, find his, find his family. Uh, the, they answered, we know him. Verse 6, is he well? Jacob asked, yes, they said. And here is his daughter, Rachel, coming with his sheep. Then Jacob said, look, it is still broad daylight. It is not time for the animals to be gathered. Uh, to be gathered. Water the flock, then go out and let them graze. 
But they replied, we can't until all the flocks have been gathered and the stone is rolled from the well's opening. Then we will water the sheep. So, so, so what, what's happening here is Jacob wants these, essentially he wants these shepherds to leave so that he can speak with Rachel. We'll, we'll see in a second that he finds her very beautiful. Uh, we also know that he's here trying to find Laban's family, likely to take a wife from one of Laban's daughters. So he's probably connecting the dots and he's attracted to her. The other thing that's interesting about what's going on here is that flocks aren't normally gathered and rounded up all around a well until the end of the day. So they're supposed to be out grazing. If they are going to take the, all these sheep and the herds to come drink, they're supposed to drink and then go back out. They shouldn't be kind of pent up in one area until the end of the day. And so to an ancient reader, these shepherds here are clearly lazy. Like they clearly don't really care. They clearly don't want to move the water, the well or the stone away. They say, well, it's pretty much just too heavy. We can't do anything about it right now. And so we can't go out until all the sheep come and we somehow get them watered. But the stone, again, it appears to them too, uh, too heavy. And so they're just, they're playing. We're just going to hang out here until later in the afternoon and then we'll move it. But then it says this in verse nine, while he was still speaking to them. So while Jacob was speaking to these other shepherds, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherdess. As soon as Jacob saw his uncle Laban's daughter, Rachel with his sheep, he went up and rolled the stone from the opening and watered his uncle's sheep. This is kind of like, you know, like when you're in middle school and you're like playing basketball with your boys and you're not really good, but you think you're good. And then you see a girl you think is cute. Like you go 110% and everyone else is like, bro, what are you doing? Right? But you're like trying really, really hard. Verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept loudly. He told Rachel that he was her father's relative, Rebecca's son. She ran and told her father. So again, remember, Jacob's made this at least a month-long journey. doesn't exactly know how it's going to play out. Uh, he's told to find a wife from one of the daughters of Laban. Uh, we are going to be told again that Rachel is very beautiful. Now, to be clear, this initial kiss would not have been uh, romantic in any way. This would have been a customary greeting. And then Jacob, again, but however, is probably likely thinking, but she's going to be the one. It says that Jacob weeps here, likely again from the joy of a successful journey, that he's made it safely, that he's going to find someone to marry, that he's in the right place, all these things. Uh, and, and again, one of the things that we're supposed to see in contrast, however, between Jacob's story and Abraham's story is that Abraham's servant, Elizer, when he comes down here and finds a wife for Isaac, uh, what does he do? He worships the Lord. Interestingly here, Jacob does not. He is excited. He weeps for joy, but there is no mention of offering praise or worship to God who provided and protected him on this journey. Again, there's a contrast. Verse 13, it says this, when Laban heard the news about his sister's son, Jacob, he ran to meet him, hugged him and kissed him. Then he took him to his house, and Jacob told him all that had happened. He probably told him about, his, about Rebecca and how she's safe and the family and all these things, right? Kind of showing who he is and all these things that he knows that has happened to his family and how he's on this journey to find a wife, all these things. Verse 14, Laban said to him, yes, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him a month, Laban said, just because you're my relative, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah, and the younger was named Rachel. Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he answered Laban, I'll work for you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban replied, Better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay with me. 
And then in verse 20, straight out of a romance novel, it says this. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only like a few days to him because of his love for her. So, so here's what's happening here, right? Uh, to us, it actually kind of seems, at least on the surface, that Laban is being gracious and kind to tell Jacob, well, you shouldn't be working here for free. Uh, let me pay you for your services. Like, let me, let me, let me, let me do, let's make an economic arrangement out of this. However, again, what he's doing with that is he's turning what's supposed to be a familial relationship into an economic one. Uh, Jacob is now seen as a contract laborer, and as we'll see over the next couple of chapters, uh, Laban is very focused on his money and what he can get out of other people. To Laban, this is definitely just an economic relationship. However, Jacob responds by saying, it's not money that I want. Uh, He wants to marry Rachel for she is very beautiful to him. Laban agrees with this, but even as you read it, you might think his, his, his answer seems to be kind of interesting, right? Laban's response isn't very warm. Uh, you would think that Laban would be happy with this arrangement, particularly in ancient culture where arranged marriage was the thing, and then you would stay kind of in your tribal familial group. Like, this is like a, supposed to be a win-win all the way around, yet his response is just odd, right? Better you than somebody else. Like, that's a weird answer to Jacob. And so what happens in the ancient world is that it was customary for a prospective husband or at least his family to give a bride, give a bride price to the father of the bride. In a legal sense, this is the bride joining the husband's family and the bride's family is losing their child and the resources they could provide. So in an ancient, pretty much rural agricultural context, people and children were a net positive for your financial outlook. And so when you lose a daughter, you're losing all the financial resources resources that she could help bring in to work on the fields and the sheep and all these things. And so you would give a bride price that was supposed to do two things. Uh, one, it was supposed to help cover some of the lost income that the family is going to have because they're essentially losing a child in the legal sense. And secondly, at least some of that money was supposed to be stored and saved for the, the daughter, for the wife, in the, in the uh, unfortunate event of a divorce or the loss of her husband. Because in the ancient world, uh, women, their legality was tied to either their father or their husband or a brother. They couldn't just kind of go out and find a job. And so being a widow in today's world is obviously really difficult. It was even harder in the ancient world just because of how society was set up. So some of that money was supposed to be saved in the event that the wife finds herself on her own. However, Laban doesn't do what he's supposed to do. In fact, later in chapter 31, Rachel and Leah actually use business language to talk about how they understand their relationship with their father. In chapter 21, uh, 31, verse 15, it says this, Are we not regarded by him as outsiders? For he has sold us and has certainly spent our purchase. So apparently Laban wants this economic relationship. He spends the bride price on things that he wants, on his resources, on and his own investments, which is supposed to be in, kept in the depth, in the death, in the in the case of the death of a husband or divorce. So what we see is that Laban, not a great guy. In fact, what we see is that Laban is a lot like Jacob. He's a lot like Jacob. And so what happens next is Jacob does this. He works for seven years. Then he asks for Rachel in marriage because he's completed his contract. And so they have a feast, a marriage celebration, which would have looked a lot different than how we do them today. And then that night after the celebration, uh, Jacob went to sleep with Rachel, went to consummate the marriage to make it a legal thing. But Laban, it tells us, actually gives uh, Jacob Leah instead of Rachel, which Jacob doesn't realize until the morning. 
So he actually sleeps with and technically marries Leah. Now, again, there's a lot of details that the stories don't tell us, right? Like we have, you have a lot of questions as you read the story, like how in the world, even if it's dark, which it would have been dark, how in the world would Jacob not know it was Ra- Leah, not Rachel? Like he would have known at least by how they, how they sound, how they talk, something. Again, we're not told. There's a good chance that perhaps drunk, drunkenness was evolved, uh, involved in the ceremony. And so Jacob probably isn't altogether there, but he wakes up, realized that he has slept with and therefore married Leah, not Rachel. And it says this, if you look down in verse 25 of chapter 29, it says this, when morning came, there was Leah. So he said to Laban, Jacob says to Laban, what have you done for me? Wasn't it Rachel that I worked for? Why have you deceived me? In other words, Jacob is rightfully angry. Uh, Jacob has married the wrong person. Of course, ironically, as we've talked about Jacob, Jacob the deceiver has now been deceived. The thing that he has done to his father, to his brother, has now been done to him. Right? Jacob tricked his father, Isaac, and Esau when he stole Esau's blessing or Esau's birthright and the blessing from Isaac that was supposed to go to Esau. He stole it. He manipulated his father and he got it from him. And so Jacob is now upset that what he has done to others has now been done to him. Right? Verse 26, it says this, Laban answered, is it not the custom in our country to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn? I'm sorry, it is not the custom in our country to do that. Verse 27, complete this week of wedding celebration. And we will also give you this younger one in return for working yet another seven years for me. And Jacob did just that. He finished the week of celebration and Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. And Laban gave his slave Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her slave. Jacob slept with Rachel also. And indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. So what what happens here is that Laban seemingly refutes uh, Jacob's anger by making himself the victim. Well, don't you know that that's actually not the custom in our and how we do things, right? The the older has to be married first, right? You might be angry, but didn't you know how things are supposed to operate? Now, of course, Laban should have been a lot more clear in the marriage contract, and perhaps he was, and he just lied, and he just changed it. After all, what's Jacob going to do? And so, but Laban does say this, let's finish this week of celebration, and then I'll go ahead and give you Rachel after this week, but then you have to promise to stay on for seven more years. Now, again, think about the, the, the characters in the story, how they're thinking. For Ray, or sorry, for Jacob, rather, right here, this would have been not just like a week of like anger at Laban, but humiliation and disgrace. Everybody knows, I mean, it's no, no doubt he's told people, I'm working for seven years, I'm marrying Rachel. And then everybody finds out, He actually didn't marry Rachel. He married Leah. And then he has to work another seven more years for Rachel. This would have been a major point of embarrassment and anger for Jacob. And so that's what happens there. Uh, The next week, he then marries Rachel. Uh, Balak comes her maid servant. Now, I want to point out two things really quick before we finish the story. The first thing is this, the polygamy question, right? So people ask, well, you're supposed to follow Jesus, supposed to be one man, one woman. This is the Bible being contradictory. What's going on here? Again, it's always helpful, especially when you're reading Old Testament stories, to know the difference between description and prescription. Description is just sharing, here's what happened in the story. Uh, Prescription is, here's what happened and here's how you need to behave or honor God or live. And so many times in the Old Testament, you get a lot of description, not prescription, right? This is not saying this is something that, that followers of Jesus should go and pattern themselves after. This is just what happened, 
Of course, it's not the Genesis ideal. It's not the Eden ideal of one man and one woman. In fact, Jacob gets deceived into marrying two women. But that's, this is a description of what happens. This is not a prescription of how believers are supposed to live. And, and the second thing I just want to point out as well is that, again, if you've been with us through Genesis, you might, have, you might be picking up another theme, but this is yet another case of sibling rivalry. Saw it with Cain and Abel, with Noah's sons, with Ishmael and Isaac. We saw it with Jacob and Esau. And now we see it with Rachel and Leah. Whereas the younger person in the sibling group who's supposed to be inferior in the ancient world is actually going to take precedence or dominance over the older sibling. And then last but not least, I think most importantly for us as we read this story is that sure, Jacob was absolutely treated unfairly. But what about Leah? Again, put your mindset in that of Leah. She is used as a pawn from her father and then clearly viewed as inferior to Jacob because he loved Rachel more. And not only is it Rachel that Jacob wanted to marry the whole time, but it makes it even worse for Leah because what Laban has done no doubt impacts how Jacob views Leah. So uh, polygamy in the ancient world, particularly for more wealthy families, was not uncommon. But it is different. It is different. And hear me, I'm not, I'm not saying this is a good thing. I'm just, just hear me. It is different for someone to have multiple wives that he chose than to have multiple wives that were uh, manipulated and given to you by trickery. Okay, so neither one of those things is good. But if you're Leah, you're used to multiple wives, husbands, social status. It was, it was a more normal thing. Again, not condoning it at all. I'm just saying the ancient mindset, that's not, that's not what's weird. If you're Leah, this happened, you weren't even wanted. And now you're, you were essentially forced to marry a man who is angry about the whole, every time he looks at you, he remembers that he was manipulated and cheated. Like he didn't even want you. And now you're his husband, right? If you're Leah, this is a terrible place to be. Verse 31, then it says this, when the Lord saw that Leah was neglected, he opened her womb, but Rachel was unable to conceive. And so I also want to mention this, many times in Old Testament narrative, the narrators don't say, here's what happened, and this was good, or this was bad. What often happens is if something happens, and you're not sure if it's good or bad, we'll see how the story plays out, and if it plays out neg negatively, it's the narrator trying to tell you, hey, this, is, this was not a good idea. This was actually not a good decision. As we're going to see in this story, it's going to create quite, quite the mess of what's happening here. Verse 32, so Leah gives, gives birth, as Leah conceived, gave birth to a son, named him Reuben. For she said, the Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. 33, she conceived again, gave birth to a son and said, the Lord heard that I am neglected and he has given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, At last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was Levi. And then 35, And she conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. Then Leah stopped having children. In other words, God sees Leah in her distress, gives her not one, uh, not two, not three, if you're LeBron James, but four, all right, four sons. The unloved Leah now gives uh, Jacob the firstborn, which is a really big deal in the ancient world. And of course, as the case was for Abraham and Isaac and their wives, of course, they only had one wife. Uh, their wives were barren until God opened their womb. They were barren for a long, long time. In this case, Jacob, who was the, sorry, Rachel, who was the favored wife of Jacob, is now experiencing the same frustrations. Right? She also is unable to conceive. 
This is actually a repeated story with this uh, emphasis, rather, in the story of the patriarchs in the Old Testament. And it's, I think the, the Bible, the, the scripture writers are trying to show us God is the one who provides and gives life. Like he's promised these great things for their offspring, but he's the one that's going to grant it. So Rachel's in a tough spot. She cannot have any kids. Of course, she's going to be jealous and angry with her sister who now has four sons. And then it says this, chapter 30, verse 1. Oh, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she envied her sister. Give me sons or I will die, she said to Jacob. Jacob became angry with Rachel and said, am I in the place of God? He has withheld offspring for you. So again, Rachel understandably is upset, jealous of a sister, which of course, this no doubt uh, strains their relationship even more. And so she, in a repeated scene, again, if you, if you map this onto the life of Abraham and Sarah, in a repeated scene, uh, she tells Jacob to sleep with her maidservant, Billa, and give her a child through her, right? So just how Abraham and Sarah were unable to conceive, and they're trying to figure out what are we going to do about this. And so uh, Abraham uh, takes Hagar and basically has a surrogate, a surrogate child through Hagar uh, named Ishmael. Uh, now that's what's going to happen here. Rachel's like, I can't have, ki- I can't have kids uh, through myself, so I'm going to take my maidservant, Let's have children through her. And so long story short, that's what they do. Okay, so Abila ends up having two sons, Dan and Naphtali. I'm going to say a lot of names here. Just track with me best you can, okay? Dan and Naphtali, at which point Leah, who had four sons of her own, but then was unable to conceive, takes her maidservant Zilpah and gives her to Jacob to have two more of her own surrogate children. Zilpah then has two sons, Gad and Asher, and so now we're up to eight kids, okay? Leah has six that are technically four biological, two through a surrogacy, if you're going to put modern language on it, and then Rachel has two through surrogacy. So we have eight children, okay? A lot of kids. Verse 14, chapter 30, pick up the story. It says this. Reuben, so this is the firstborn of Leah, the oldest of all the kids, okay? Leah, Reuben, went out during the wheat harvest and found some mandrakes in the field. When he brought them to his mother Leah, Rachel asked, so again, Rachel the sister asked, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. So mandrakes, two things point out, it was extremely uh, rare in the ancient world in this area, so it was a big deal if you had them, but they also were viewed as an aphrodisiac, okay, as a kind of a uh, fertility, ancient world fertility pill. That's how they were viewed as. And so what you're going to see here is a story. Remember Jacob essentially buying the birthright from Esau with a pot of, a pot of food? You're going to see this replayed right here, verse 15. But Leah replied to her, isn't it enough that you have taken my husband? Now you also want to take my son's mandrakes? Well then, Rachel said, he can't sleep with you today. He can sleep with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. So Rachel says, you can have Jacob tonight, but I want the mandrakes. Verse 16, when Jacob came in from the field that evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come with me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So Jacob slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my slave to my husband, and she named him Issachar. So let me just explain what's happening. I know we've gone through a lot today, but it's easy for us to miss. The irony to the story is this. Jacob, again, stole the birthright from Esau for food, and now Leah becomes pregnant after trading food for a night with Jacob. Now, the, again, the irony here is, again, these, these mandrakes were seen as an aphrodisiac. They're seen as a love fruit, if you will. Uh, I mean, to be, I'm not trying to be crass, but like just to understand how the ancient viewers would have seen this, think of this as like the blue pill for women. I mean, this is like, that's what they would have been thought of, right? And so it's like, if I take this, 
I'm going to have kids. I'm going to become pregnant. The irony, though, is that after uh, Leah gives up the mandrakes to Rachel, Leah goes on to have another son named Issachar, and then later is going to get pregnant again with another son named Zebulun. So she gives up the love fruit, and yet she's the one that still has kids. Rachel buys this love fruit, and she's still unable to have children. Okay, so Leah has two more kids. It brings the total number of kids up to 10, two for Rachel, uh, eight for Leah. But then Leah also says something that's uncomfortable to us, right? She says this in verse 18, God has rewarded her for giving her slave to her husband. Now to us, we'd be like, this is it's already messed up with two of them. Now there's four of them. Like, would God really reward you for taking your maidservant and maybe essentially telling her she must sleep with your husband so that you can have more kids? Now, I just, I want to say this. Remember, this is what she says. God does not say this. In her mind, she thinks this is what God is doing, likely thinking that this is my reward for giving my husband more children through Zilpah, because again, in a way that we can't fully, I think, appreciate in the modern context, kids were a big deal. Like for us today, kids are awesome. You should have them. They're amazing, right? But they are not a financial positive in our culture today, right? Kids really are not a financial like positive until you're really old and they have to start taking care of you and maybe help pay for some of your care. But for all the, your life growing up, I mean, they are a net negative for you financially. In the ancient world, once your kid was about four or five, he's out working the field or she's out working the field, they are a net positive for you financially. So she's thinking, well, I've, I've kind of through my own ways, like got my husband to have more kids. So God is blessing me for that. But remember, God does not say that. That's what she says. And so again, after this, we are told that God remembered Rachel. So after all these children from all these women, but none through Rachel herself, it says God remembered Rachel, listened to her prayer and opened her womb. The, the, she then has a son named Joseph, who you're going to find out if you're familiar, is going to become to have a prominent role. But you're already starting to see cracks in the family, right? The favored wife, the unfavored wife, Rachel, the favored wife, finally has a child of her own named Joseph, who's going to become uh, Jacob's most prized possession, most favorite child. But up until this point, here's where you are. If you're still with me, I know we went through a lot of names today, okay? 11 kids so far. This is a mess in terms of how it all took place. 11 kids, four women, but Rachel finally has a child of her own. And from our perspective, this is significant, right? It leads to, again, another story of sibling rivalry where the youngest and the older siblings don't get along. And you're going to see this in a couple of weeks where Joseph and the older siblings, they're going to have a falling out. They're going to have an issue. But for today's purposes, and again, I know I've gone through a lot this morning. You're probably like, I don't even remember who's who anymore. That's fine, right? I just want us to focus in on this and to see how Leah's story impacts us today. Again, she was treated as a financial pawn from her dad. She is seen as as the unfavored and the lesser wife through a marriage that she was manipulated and tricked into going into, right? Just a hard experience when, when you're always clearly the one that nobody cares about. I mean, the three most significant relationships that she has in this story, her father, her sister, and her husband, overlooked, not wanted by any of them, by any of them, right? This is who she is. Yet what's interesting is that Jacob is actually going to end up having 12 sons in total. So Rachel's going to have one more son later on. 
And then he gets his name changed to Israel, which we'll see. And then Israel will be made up of 12 tribes coming from these 12 sons. So in the mess of all this, God's still going to redeem it. This is how we get Israel and the Israelites. You get lots of names, but it was actually Leah's fourth son, uh, Judah, from which our Messiah comes from. In other words, check this out. It was the woman that nobody wanted who gave birth to the bloodline of the Messiah that everyone rejected. That's the lineage of Messiah Jesus from the woman that was wanted by no one. He has a son and the bloodline is traced through her. Jesus came from and for those who feel unlovely, unlo unwanted, and unlovable. That's where our Messiah comes from. So again, quickly this, this, uh, this morning, the question for us is this. What does God do with one, one unwanted people? Right? What does he do with unwanted people? Well, here's what we know. Okay? First thing is this, that Jesus came from someone who felt unwanted. Right? That's his lineage. That's where he came from. Now, that what's significant, or maybe what's ironic, is later on, Leah, not Rachel, gets, gets uh, buried in the family burial plot. Rachel does not. Now, it's not because there was a conflict or an issue, but Rachel ends up dying when Jacob and his family are not back in the same area where the burial grounds were for Abraham and Isaac and his parents and his mom. And so Leah is actually the one that gets buried with the ancestors. Rachel was not. We even see in this story, Leah has times of faith and also times of struggle, yet God still cared for her. So I just want to point out, Jesus came from someone who felt unwanted. We also know this, that Jesus came for those who feel unwanted. So when Jesus is on the scene, if you read the Gospels, if you're familiar at all, even if you're not, you're undoubtedly aware that one of the things that made Jesus so unique was the time he was the people he spent time around, right? He spent time around with people of all ilks, of, of, of an equal, he was an equal opportunity offender. So he spent time with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And again, it's, it, again, it's, it's hard for us to fully appreciate because in our modern context, influenced by the teachings of Jesus, we actually actually look down, or not look down, that we want the marginalized to be helped, and we uh, look forward, we, sh we celebrate stories where people helping the downtrodden. That's not how it worked in the ancient world. But Jesus did not just spend time with the sinners and the poor. He also spent time with the rich and the elite. That was the Pharisees in Jerusalem. Hear me. If Jesus were here today, there is zero, I, I can't speak for you, I'll speak for me. There is zero doubt in my mind that I would be absolutely offended by who Jesus befriended. Listen, if Jesus was here today, there is no doubt in my mind that he would not just like befriend and, and love these people because like that's a good thing to do, but he, you would see pictures online of him actually laughing and having a good time with Donald Trump. You would see that. You would see Jesus laughing and having a good time and spending time on Air Force One with Joe Biden. You would see that. You would see Jesus with Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and, and, the, and the person that working in the adult film industry. Like, you would see that and it would offend us. Yet this is who Jesus came to love. Whoever your person of, bad person of choice is, Jesus would love them. But, but, but here's what this means, also means. That if Jesus would love them and care for them, it also means that Jesus would spend time with you. That's what it means. Now, I know there's 8 billion people in the world, so maybe not like literally you, sorry, but he would spend time with like someone like you, right? He would spend time with someone like you, but he would spend time with someone like me. He meets us where we are. He came for those who feel unwanted. And so therefore, last but not least, here's what this text is pointing us to, that Jesus came to redeem those that are not wanted. One of the things we say often here at New City Church is that scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. 
And you can see Jesus' love and embrace and his character all throughout how God interacts with these women, particularly with how he interacts with Leah in this story. The rejected one wanted and unloved by everybody, yet we see in this story that she is seen by God, she is known by God, she is wanted by God, and she is loved by God, even if no one else seems to want her. She's the one that God chooses to say, I'm going to send my Messiah through her bloodline, not the one that was chosen, not the one that we would expect, the one that we would think would be Rachel. And so hear me this morning, as I close, the love of Christ, not our efforts, not our trying really hard, and not what other people think of us, said of us, or have done to us. Jesus is what makes us lovely before God, that we have the unconditional love from the Father because of the Son. The good news of the gospel is not that we earned it, that we proved ourselves, that we're better, we have more money, we're more attractive, we're smarter than those around us, but then in our brokenness and despair, Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we could not live, died the death that we deserve, rose three days later to demonstrate his power over sin and death to say, you're welcome here. That Jesus is our substitutionary atonement, that he took the sacrifice, the death, the uh, wrath of God that we deserve and said that any and everyone is welcome to my table, not because of what you think or what's been told about you, but because of what I have done for you. The good news of the gospel is all of us, no matter how we feel, how we've been treated, retreated, or how we view ourselves, are wanted, are desired, and invited in by God. And we see that all the way to Jesus' beginning through the lineage of Leah, the one that was unwanted, overlooked. She's the one that God chooses to bless the entire 